Why doesn't God do something? Uh, In the last couple of weeks, around 1,500 Israelis have been killed by Hamas attacks and nearly 3,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza by Israel in retaliation. Seems likely that's just the start. Uh, Add to that armed conflicts in Syria, Libya, Morocco, Turkey, Yemen, Iraq and Egypt. And that's just the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, There's Russia and Ukraine, of course. That slipped from the news a little recently. But in the 20 months since Russia invaded, the New York Times estimates that half a million soldiers have lost their lives uh, on both sides. Uh, It doesn't look any closer to finishing. uh, Anger, hatred and violence are everywhere. Why doesn't God do something? Uh, And that's just human uh, incidents. In October, more than 2,000 died in an earthquake in Afghanistan. And in September, more than 11,000 died in floods in Libya. Death, suffering and despair are everywhere. Why doesn't God do something? Uh, And then there is all the personal suffering that we go through. Untreatable cancer, chronic pain, physical injury and illness, victims of crime and violence, debilitating mental illness, infertility, family relationship breakdown, loneliness, isolation, profound disappointment in life. And these are things that Christians I know are enduring. I'm sure you could add to that list. Why doesn't God do something? That's a cheery start to the sermon, isn't it? But that's the reality of the world we live in, isn't it? That's the experience of the Christian life. The Christian faith is one of hope. Because we live in the gap. We live in the gap between God's promise and the fulfilment of God's promise. God crowned Jesus as king over everything when he raised him from the dead and restored him to heaven. But Satan is still prince of this world and he seems to get what he wants a lot of the time. Jesus defeated sin and death, but Christians still sin and die. God promised us riches and new bodies and no sickness and no more tears. But Christians are still poor and suffer with broken bodies and tears. But God has promised and God keeps his promise. And Christians are called to trust him while we wait. As we suffer and hope as we live in the gap between the promise and the fulfilment. Now that's where we can learn something from Zechariah, from God's people in Jerusalem, because they too were living in the gap. God had promised them restoration and blessing and a return to prosperity and rest and peace, but they hadn't seen it yet. They'd come back to the promised land, but their experience was still a long way from what God had promised. 
There's still so much more to come. And so they have to keep trusting God while they wait and while they obey him and while they work at bringing those promises to pass. So verse 7 sets the date. Uh, It's the second year of King Darius of Persia. Uh, The year is 520 BC. 18 years earlier, God had caused uh, Darius' great His his grandfather, King Cyrus of Persia, to release the Jews from Babylon, send them back to Israel. Uh, And then verse 8, God has more messages for his prophet Isaiah. But these messages, they're not straightforward. Uh, Like verse 1, where we read, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. (laughs) This time, Zechariah sees a vision at night. Now we're not sure whether he was sleeping and it was a dream or if he was awake. But either way, what he sees, it's not a product of his own mind. It's not a nightmare. It's not because he ate too much spicy food. This is a message from God and it's just as real as the words that we read in verses 2 to 6. But it's a message that's more difficult to interpret. As Merrick said, and as Cheryl said, and I'm feeling the pressure. Uh, Because here, from from here all the way to the end of chapter 6, there are eight visions. Visions about strange animals, and objects, and people, and they represent different things in reality. But what's great news for us is that Zechariah is smart enough to actually ask, what is this? What does it mean? Uh, Some details don't get uh, explained, but we can be confident that the things that we do need to understand will be explained for us. So that's helpful. So let's dive in. Verse 8, Zechariah sees a man riding a red horse. Now think chestnut or bay rather than bright red. It's not not a fire engine red horse. It's it's a a chestnut coloured horse. And he's in the middle of a forest of myrtle trees in a valley. And behind him, there are more horses. And then verse 9, Zechariah asks the question that's on the tip of our tongues, what are these, my Lord? And at which point we're introduced to someone else in his vision. The angel who was talking to me answered, I will show you what they are. Now this guy, this angel who is talking to Zechariah, he's a guide, the, the one who answers questions. And so, in verse 10, we find out that it's not just a herd of horses, but there's actually riders on the horses. And these riders are scouts. Their job is to investigate the earth. Verse 10, Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Now the report from the scouts is that the nations are at peace. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? But as we keep reading, we realise that it's a certain type of peace. Uh, It's enforced peace. Peace at the end of a spear. Peace that's the result of a world superpower that defeats and dominates everyone else. Is that peace? Well, sort of. There may be the absence of war, 
But that doesn't mean things are great for those who are not on top, like Israel. Now that's what the angel goes on to say in verse 12. Uh, Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? Now it could be that the angel is thinking about Zechariah's current situation. The 70 years of exile have just finished and the people are back in the land, but they're still not independent. And Persia is the one that dominates and and forces peace. But I think it actually makes more sense if we see this as a flashback. If we see it as describing past events, when, when Babylon is in charge and the Jews are still stuck in exile and God is still punishing his people. And their experience while they're in exile is is mourning and despair and questioning how long will this punishment, this confusion and this pain continue? When will it end? Uh, We read this type of um, comment, chapter after chapter, of these questions and these laments in, in Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. So if that's the case, Israel is is in exile, God is punishing them. What does God think of this suffering? After all, he's the one in charge of everything. He's responsible for what's happening to them. Is he disinterested and dispassionate, detached, aloof? No way. Look at how he answers the angel who asks how long, verse 13. So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. God is not a a cool, impassive deliverer of justice. He's a gentle father who disciplines his child for her good and then comforts her afterwards to restore and rebuild the intimacy. And he's jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. He's the passionate husband with intense loyalty for his wife. He will do what needs to be done to win her back. That's how God feels about you. And so God plans a great reversal for his people. A great reversal. He's brought the punishment. Now he's going to bring the blessing. The situation will change from retribution to restoration. From separation to relationship. From distance to tenderness. Which means there'll also be a great reversal for their enemies, Israel's enemies. Verse 15 But I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Those nations who thought they were on top, who thought they were safe, those who prided themselves in their position, they're in for a shock. God had actually raised them up to deliver justice against Israel. But now he's going to bring them back down again, bring them back to earth. The reason is because they went too far. 
They didn't show mercy. They were like playground bullies. And then from verse 16, we see what this great reversal will look like for Israel. The nations are brought down, but Israel will be lifted up. Verse 16, therefore this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. He's going to return to Jerusalem, which as we know he he will do by raising up Persia to punish Babylon and then cause Cyrus to send the Jews home. We know the history. And then when they come back they will rebuild the temple that represents God's throne room where God dwells on earth and then God promises that he will come and dwell among his people again. But not just the temple, he talks about a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. A tape measure, a measuring line stretched out is a signal that there's building work happening of progress. It's like you look at the scaffolding on that building site across the road. Something's happening. It's good news. Well, unless you're a neighbour, it's good news for the people who are building. He's saying that rather than ruins and weeds in Jerusalem, there will be building work. Construction's going to restore the city. What was desolation and despair will become prosperity and peace. Now these are wonderful promises to the angel's question about why doesn't God do something? He sees, he cares, he's got a plan. Now that's a great answer, or part of a great answer to our questions about why God doesn't do something in our situation, in our world. He sees, he cares, He's got a plan. Uh, Which brings us to vision two uh, from verse 18. It it describes the other side of this great reversal. Describes how God will show his anger against the nations who defeated Israel. He'll lift up Israel, but he will bring down the nations. So look at verse 18. Then I looked up and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. Now the number four in this sort of literature, it represents earthly completeness. The four four corners of the earth, the four winds. And so four horns may not represent specific nations. The angel doesn't tell us. Uh, They're not identified, so we shouldn't worry too much about trying to identify them. But we are told is what God uh, we are told what God will do to them. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise his head, but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. God is going to destroy those nations, not using four warriors or four aggressive beasts or four avenging angels, but four craftsmen, 
tradies. People skilled at building things, not destroying them. Which is weird and unexpected. Why craftsmen? Well, one possibility is that craftsmen represent other nations. So the next world superpower in history rises up and throws down the one that came before it. Now that that would fit what happens in history. Egypt was on top and then Assyria rose and threw them down and then Babylon rose and threw threw them down and then Persia rose and threw them down and Greece rose and, and, and Rome rose and each one rises and throws down the one before it. That would fit. Uh, in fact, in Ezekiel 21, uh, after God describes his punishment of Judah by Babylon, he, he's, he's, he says that the Ammonites will also be destroyed. And, and this is how he describes that process in verse 31. I will hand you over to brutal men, men skilled in destruction. Or, or it's actually craftsmen in destruction. So it, it uses the same word. So perhaps that fits the theory that these craftsmen will be other nations who destroy the enemies of Israel. And so the principle, I guess, we see is uh, that when we are suffering, when we're wondering what God is doing, we need to remember that God promises to work out his plans in history that will bring justice and preserve his people. And we need to trust him and be patient as we wait, as we live in the gap. We need to remember that God sees and God cares and that God has a plan. But I wonder if there's not another possibility for who the craftsmen represent. A more long-term, a more future-looking possibility. Remember that the point of the first vision was that God was going to return to Jerusalem and rebuild his house, rebuild the temple. But he won't do that by himself. It's not just going to miraculously appear. He'll need people to build it. He's going to need craftsmen. He's going to need builders. He's going to need tradies if you're going to build a building. Now that word for craftsmen, it's used also in Exodus 38 to describe the men who made the tabernacle, the sowers and the the people who uh, cut the wood and uh, embroidered things and uh, made the gold things. They're craftsmen. Uh, It's used in 2 Samuel 5. King Hiram of uh, Lebanon sent craftsmen to help build the temple. They were woodworkers. Uh, 2 Kings 12, King Joash Uh, uses craftsmen to repair the temple. And uh, King Josiah uses the same craftsmen or the same uh, group of of men to uh, repair the temple in 2 Kings 22. Uh, So these are people, this is a a description that's that's used quite often to describe building the temple. So, uh, maybe the point of Zechariah's second vision about the craftsmen is that God is going to bring down the nation's by rebuilding his temple. How's that going to work? God is going to bring down the nations without using armies or weapons or bloodshed. He's going to build a very different sort of kingdom. When God rules again from his temple in Jerusalem, 
If people can just live God's way, just just for once, uh, then God will establish his kingdom. It'll be God's people in God's place under God's rule. What a vision. And when that happens, the vision is that the nations will be humbled and they'll be attracted to that vision. They'll want to be part of worshipping God. In fact, if we flip over to chapter 2 of Zechariah, the third vision describes exactly that, describes God rebuilding his city. And in verse 10 and 11, we read this. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. So that's the vision. Perhaps the four craftsmen who throw down and terrify the nations, it's not about military victory, but missionary victory. The victory of God's kingdom over the nations is not humble slavery or suffering or defeat, but the nations recognising God's goodness and joining with God's people in humble obedience and worship. The reality is, though, that never happens. In Israel's history, they limp along. The temple's rebuilt, but there's no record that God ever comes to dwell in the temple like he did in Solomon's temple. Politically, that the nation slowly gets back on its feet. It never really regains independence. There's this very brief little window where there are some Jewish kings. But it it never regains world dominance. We never see the nations flocking to Jerusalem to follow God. So when will God keep these promises? Well, what about now? Uh, Perhaps the events happening in Israel are particularly significant. The conflict with Palestinians, some Christians... Think so? Perhaps this is God working to keep his promises, to return to Jerusalem and join uh, the nations to Israel? In my opinion, the answer to that question is no. Because God's promise to return to Jerusalem, God's promise to dwell among his people was not fulfilled in a building. It was fulfilled in a person. When God sent Jesus, he was God in the flesh and he came and he dwelt among us. John 1.14 describes Jesus using tabernacle imagery that we're meant to just think about. The tabernacle when we think of Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling. He pitched his tent among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Jesus is God dwelling among his people. And then Jesus replaces the physical temple. He replaces the building. Uh, He becomes the place where people meet God. Uh, In John chapter 2, he says that his body is the temple. It's a temple that will be destroyed and then rebuilt or raised again in three days. Jesus is saying that 
He is the dwelling place of God among men. Jesus bridges the gap between God and men. Jesus is where we meet God, not in a temple, in a building. The literal temple in Jerusalem is is nothing more than a foundation wall where the Jews go to offer prayers. It's disputed ground that Christians and Jews and Muslims have been fighting over for centuries. And instead of looking there to act, we should be looking to Jesus, where God has acted and where God will act. Because it's around Jesus that God is bringing the nations to worship him. So what does all this mean for us? It means we no longer need a temple because there's a sense in which we are the temple. We are the church. Not the building, but the people is the church. God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 uses this building language to describe what God is building in a group of people. He says, he just, these verses describe God's temple rebuilding project. As you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see the temple that God is interested in building now? He's building us. And God still wants craftsmen. He still wants builders. God still wants people who will work with him to build his temple, to grow his church, a church that he wants to include all nations. A few verses further on in 1 Peter 2, we're challenged to start building. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you see God's heart for the nations? You may be hopeless with a hammer or a drill, but you can live a Christ-like life, a life that's winsome and pure and truthful and courageous. You can be a tradie, an ordinary, unspectacular life, but God promises that a life like that will draw the nations, will draw non-Christians to Jesus so that they can glorify God, just like that, uh, that image in uh, uh, Zechariah 2. And so our church needs tradies. Uh, our church needs ordinary people to speak the truth of God's word to one another, to serve one another in all sorts of ways, to encourage and pray for one another. And in God's mysterious upside-down purposes, that's the way his kingdom will grow. God's countercultural, subversive, world-defeating weapon 
is the church. God's countercultural, subversive, world defeating weapon is the church. That's his strategy for bringing down and humbling the nations of this world, the four horns. In Zechariah's day, those world powers were Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia. Today, they're the powers, the philosophies, the institutions, the economies of our world. Media, the media and humanism and consumerism and modern psychology and academic pride. We look at them and we think they're so big. God's strategy, it's not violent or aggressive or obvious, but but God is building his church. He's gathering individuals in every country and world power and institution. They're coming to the foot of Jesus' throne and they're laying their crowns at his feet and giving him the honour and the glory that he deserves. May he use us to do that. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.